Well, good morning, Chillicothe Bible Church. Good morning. Hey, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11 this, this morning. We've uh, made it all the way here, made it through the last big warning passage last week in Hebrews uh, at the end of chapter 10 there. And uh, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11, the, uh, the famous faith chapter or God's honor roll or the hall of fame of faithful people, however you like to think of it. Uh, and we want to look at that. Before we do, we want to pray. So let's pray together. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that it was not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to your mercy that you saved us. That it was not because of our wonderful specialness, but in spite of our sin and rebellion, that Jesus Christ came into the world to offer his life on the cross and to be raised from the dead to give us new life and forgiveness and adoption into your family. Father, we love you and we pray this morning that your word would speak to our hearts and that it would not only speak, but that we would have ears to hear and be quick to obey the things which you say to us. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, we are in Hebrews chapter 11. This is going to be an exciting uh, morning this morning, but actually we're going to spend several weeks in Hebrews 11 looking at uh, looking at this issue of faith and, and being a person of faith in spite of adversity. Uh, I can't imagine what possible application that could have. Uh, being a person of faith in spite of adversity, but nonetheless, I think there will there will be some things that we will learn uh, as we go through. I want to just quickly address uh, what faith is not. Uh, what faith is not is believing what you know uh, not to be true. Uh, there are a lot of people who who uh, who talk this way that well. Uh, you know, especially as you get into the interplay sometimes in the discussion between what the Bible says and what science says, or what the Bible says and some philosopher says, or what the Bible says versus what some other person who claims to be an authority says. And they say, well, I have the facts on my side, but you have, you, you know, you go ahead and have your faith. As if somehow... Being, believing in what the Bible says is somehow opposed to reality and the truth. And nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, faith is not believing something that you know to be untrue. It is, in fact, believing what you know to be true, even though others might say, oh, no, it's not. Uh, and there is no virtue to be gained from continuing to hold false ideas in the teeth of conclusive evidence to the contrary. There's no virtue in that. And the Bible does not expect that of us. The Bible does not say, we want you to believe in fairy tales. That's not what the Bible is. And that's not who God is. The realities that the Bible points us to are more real than many of the things that we can see and touch and taste and smell. It isn't believing what you know not to be true. 
It isn't a leap in the dark. We don't believe things that we have no evidence for, but that we really hope are true because they make us feel better and they sound good. In fact, the Bible here in Hebrews chapter 11 gives us a definition of what faith is, and I want to show it to you on verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews 11. He says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. Well, what is faith? According to, the, to verse 1 there, it's the assurance of things hoped for. That's number one. And number two, it is the conviction of things not seen. To put it in, in, in different words, it's believing the things that God has told us and for which we are hoping that those things will come true. It's the deep-rooted commitment to the fact that just because I cannot yet see these things, that I will one day see them. It is to borrow uh, the title from your outline there, trusting God for what we cannot yet see. And you ought to underline and circle that little word yet there on your outline. Because the issue is not whether or not we will see God's promises come true, but the fact that we have not seen them come true yet. They're going to happen. They just haven't happened yet. And what kind of things hoped for and things not seen are we going to see? Are we going to get? Well, if you want to look at it back in the context there, uh, earlier in verse 10, uh, take a look here, verse 34, a better possession and an abiding one. Uh, verse 35, a great reward. Verse 36, receiving what is promised. Verse 37 and 38, how Jesus is coming back for us. Do we see those things fulfilled to us today? No. Has Jesus come back for any of you? Raise your hand if Jesus has returned and taken you home to heaven. All right? Hasn't happened yet, has it? Right? If, you, if it had, none of us would be here to raise our hand. Right? Uh, it hasn't happened yet. Again, emphasis on that word, yet. And faith is trusting that God is going to do these things until the day that we do see them come true. Because we know who God is, and we know that His promises always, always, always come true. Amen? Amen. God's Word always comes true. And so when He promises us these things, we are not hoping like people in the world hope. People in, the world, people in the world hope like this. They say things like, you think it'll rain today? I don't know, but I hope so. We, my grass could sure use it. It's dying out there. In other words, maybe it will happen. Maybe it won't. My hoped-for conclusion is that it will. But Christian hope is nothing like that. It is confident expectation that God is going to deliver on His Word. 
And it hasn't happened yet, but we know it's going to, and so we put our hope in that. That one day, the things the Bible tells us are going to happen that haven't happened yet are going to take place. And when they do, we won't hope anymore. Because what we hope for will be our present reality. Do you know that when you get to heaven, you will no longer have faith? You won't have faith anymore. You know why? Because faith will be sight. And your hope will be your present reality. And love will remain, but that's because you will be in the presence of the one who loved you as a result of which you love him. These things are going to take place. The Lord really will return. And faith is trusting God in in His promises until they do. Amen? It's what faith is. And verse 2 is a reminder that it was precisely that kind of faith. That God had made a statement to people and they believed it and they trusted Him until He fulfilled it. And then He's going to give us through the rest of the chapter, all the way through Hebrews 11, example after example after example of people to whom God made great promises, who did not see them fulfilled right away, but who nevertheless saw them fulfilled. And they trusted God all the way to their death many times, waiting for the promise of the fulfillment waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise to come to them. And it did in every single case. And so he gives us example after example after example to remind us that God has made great promises to us too. And that just like they waited in faith, trusting God's promises, and then saw them fulfilled, so we also need to trust God until we see his promises fulfilled, which we will. Amen? All right. So we want to look at the first three examples here uh, of, how, of people who believed God and got a great reward. And he actually starts not with people, but with us. And he starts in verse 3. Uh, so I want to read verse 3 to 7 with you. And then go back to verse 3 and look at this. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now if you look at the chapter as a whole, you'll see that the author of Hebrews walks you through all the Old Testament. 
The whole thing from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to the last of the prophets. He gives you the whole span of the Old Testament in uh, Hebrews chapter 11. And so it's appropriate that his first example is from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. In his first example, he says, We believe that by the word of God the heavens were made. He's talking about the creation of the universe, that everything that exists came about, came into existence by the word of God who spoke the heavens and the earth and all creation and all creatures into existence by his word. Do you remember? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and void. And God said, and it was, right? God spoke and there was light and there was dark. And there was evening and there was morning. And God spoke and there were seas and there were dry land. And there was sky and there was water in, on the earth. And there was animals in the sky and animals in the water and animals on the earth. And God spoke these things into existence. And he says, we believe this because it is in the word of God. And the Word of God that, that gives us promises is the same Word of God which spoke these things into existence. And by the way, notice the creative process. It says that God, that, that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. In other words, God didn't start with some pre-existing material stuff and just kind of form and make that stuff that was already there into the things that we see. Where did the time, space, mass, matter, universe come from? Came out of the mouth of God who brought it into existence by the power of His Word. In other words, before there was all these things, God existed. And then he spoke and brought these things into existence. Now, what's the reason he underlines that point? Well, part of it surely is to emphasize God's power. I don't know, I don't know if you have ever tried this, but I, you know, I have, I have uh, the unique inability to make anything happen simply by command, Right? Even though I have children, I can't, still can't make that happen, right? Uh, right? I, I can say, and the dishes should be done, right? And they all kind of look at one another and go, oh, I don't know who he's talking to, but it's certainly not me. <laughs> okay, okay. But when God speaks, things happen. And if God decreed by his word that the dishes should appear in the dishwasher, they would without any intervention of humanity whatsoever. And the point is that, that God is able to speak into existence things which do not yet exist. And therefore, we can trust him that when he says, this is going to happen in a universe that already exists, that this is not a hard task for God. Amen? I mean... You think he broke a sweat on the, on the days of creation? No. Any more than you do when you're talking. 
I mean, I might break a sweat up here. It is warm in here. But, but God is never exerting himself to accomplish anything. And God calls into existence things which do not exist by his word. And therefore, God can keep his promises to us by that same word. Because it is much less effort, much easier to make things that already exist be a certain way than to create them out of nothing to start with. And God is a God who is that powerful, who can create things out of nothing. The promises in, that we have in Christ in this are things that we do not see. But one day God will cause them to be visible for us. In the same way he brought the creation into existence by his word, by the word of his power, the things he has promised will also come into existence, though we do not see them yet. Now, if you go to verse 4, verse 4 skips ahead in Genesis to chapter 4, and it gives us the example of Abel. Abel was the second-born son of Adam and Eve. Their firstborn was Cain. Second-born son was Abel. And Abel and Cain both learned the example from Genesis chapter 3 that God required sacrifice for sin in order to be in relationship with him. And the scriptures in Genesis 4 contrast the sacrifices of Cain and Abel. Cain comes to God and he offers, he's a gardener, and so he takes some of the produce from his garden, and that's how the scripture phrases it, he took some of the produce from his garden and offered it as sacrifice to God. In contrast to that, Abel, Abel went to his flocks and he picked the firstborn and the best of the flocks that he had, and he offered that in sacrifice to God. Now, if you are a woman and your husband comes home and he says to you, hey, I got you some stuff from somewhere, right? You might appreciate that in some degree, some measure, okay. But if he says to you, I went to Nordstrom's and I picked out the best, of what they had there, and I brought it home. What's your response? A little bit different, right? A little bit different. Because in one case, it's just some things that I happen to have, right? I mean, it was either go to the garage sale or go to you. I mean, so, you know, okay, here you go, right? Uh, In the other case, you offered the best of what you had. And that's what Abel does. He offers to God the very best of what he has to offer. And the attitude underlying the sacrifice is totally divergent. And so God honors Abel's sacrifice. And he accepts him. And he says, Abel, you are a man who understands what I'm talking about. You are a guy who gets it. It's not simply a box that you check off. Yep, I did it. But there's a heart of coming to God in trust 
and offering to him the best of what you have that you might be in relationship with him. Versus Cain's attitude was, well, God says I've got to offer sacrifice, so here. Totally different attitude. And when God confronts Cain, what happens? Cain says, I don't know what your problem is, God. Leave me alone, essentially. That's living Bible uh, approach to that, right? And he goes out, and he's mad at his brother Abel, and he's jealous of him, and he takes a rock and bashes his brother's skull in with it. And Abel dies, but he dies in faith, believing that God is going to send the Redeemer to whom the sacrifice pointed. And he goes to his death, reconciled to God, trusting God's word that the Redeemer would come through the sacrifice, just as God had said. What's Cain do? He founds a whole civilization on his own, devoted to opposing and resisting and rebelling against and rejecting God. Abel dies as the first person who's ever killed for his faith. But according to verse 4, his life still speaks to us of the fact that God accepts those who come to him in faith, believing his promise. And then you move on to Enoch. Uh, This man is a relatively obscure guy. He only gets a couple of mentions in the Scripture. He gets one, I believe, in Jude, and like one verse in Genesis chapter 5. And Enoch is a guy who is described as walking with God in his day. In his generation, he is the man who walks with God, who pursues a relationship with God. In fact, the Scripture says that for over 300 years, he walked with God. And then God took him out of that wicked generation of people and took him to glory without dying. By the way, just sermon and a sermon here. One of the reasons that I hold to the rapture of the church is because of Enoch. That one day, just like Enoch, when God has determined the last member of the church, not this church, but the church universal, comes into, into a relationship with God by faith, Jesus Christ will return according to the Scriptures and snatch, like Enoch, out of this wicked world the people that are His. And then judgment will fall. By the way, is that what happened right after Enoch died? Yes. That's exactly what happened. That Enoch's taken away, and then judgment falls after that. And it falls in the generation of the next man that you see, Noah. Um, Let's read verse 6 here first. Without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, this is a, verse 6 is a little aside, a little parenthetical note here that the author is making. It says, you know, I don't want you to get confused, essentially. Uh, the author isn't simply giving these examples to us for our informational acquisition, in other words, he's not te- I'm not telling you this, guys, so that you'll go, yep, okay, I remember Enoch, great. Checked it off. All right, yep, remember Abel, yep, yep, that's good. Okay, great example, yeah. 
Good, good point. Yeah, I believe you. Great. He's saying, look, these guys and their faith still applies. How did a person in the Old Testament come into a relationship with God? Same way you and I do, by faith. They didn't, come to, they didn't come into relationship with God because they offered sacrifice, although sacrifice was necessary. The sacrifice was there as an expression of faith. And Noah obeyed God, not because he was so wonderfully smart and he was just better than everybody else, but because by faith he had come into relationship with God. And Enoch did not walk with God just because he was the most amazing dude of his generation, but because God had been gracious to him and revealed the truth to him, and Enoch believed it as a result of which he walked with God. In other words, it's not the deeds that these people did that brought them into relationship with God. It is their faith as a result of which they did the things they're commended for. And it works identically the same way with you and me. You know, a lot of people get this confused. They think, well, God has all these requirements in the Scripture, and that's true. He does. He has all these things He expects of us. And so if I just do those things, well, surely I will be in right relationship with God. But the reality is nothing could be further from the truth. God does not ask us to be holy in isolation from being in relationship with Him. You get a transformed heart First, as a result of which you live a transformed life. Amen? You, don't, you can't do it in reverse. You can't, you can't try really, really hard to be good and therefore be acceptable to God and then He make you holy and save you. No. You come to God in faith, believing His promise. And what's His promise? That Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross as your substitute for your sin. And that when you put your trust in Him and in the fact that He was raised from the dead to give you new life, then you, you come into relationship with God by faith because of His grace to you. And as a result of that, God the Holy Spirit comes into your life and makes you holy. And that's what this verse is talking about, verse 6, when it says, without faith it is impossible to please God. Meaning, you can't do enough stuff in order to please God. You can't give enough money. There aren't enough Girl Scouts in the entire world to walk across the street. Uh, there aren't enough little old ladies to bring Meals on Wheels to. There is, there's not enough, uh, you know, there's not enough uh, runs for St. Jude that you can go on, okay? You can't be a good enough person on your own to come into relationship with God and to, be, to live a life pleasing to Him. You have to come to Him by faith. And the emphasis of this text is to say it is not because of the things these guys did that they pleased God. It was their faith that pleased God. As a result, as one outcome of their faith, they did these things. Does that make sense? Hope so. Because this is really important that you understand this. 
that, it, that the, the, the life of faith is not a life of checking off boxes of things that you do. It is believing God's word and his promise by faith coming into relationship with God and then living a transformed life by God's power as you, by faith, come into relationship with him. All right. And he says, you must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And he does. Uh, how many of you all would follow God if you did not think he was there? I don't see any hands going up. Right? Because that would be foolish. You would be an idiot. I don't think God is there, but I do think that I ought to do some stuff. That's illogical. No one would do that. So in order to come to God, you must believe that he exists. And you also need to believe that he rewards those who seek him out. And he does. In fact, the reward far exceeds the cost of following him. Because when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, are there rewards? Let me tell you about rewards, okay? When you get to glory, you will go to a city that is 1,500 miles square, that has walls that are 30 feet thick and 150 feet high, and which no evil person is ever allowed to enter, so there will not be any crime in the city. And all of the people who, like you, put your trust in Jesus Christ will be there with you. So if you get there ahead of me, say hi to my grandma and my grandfather. Say hi to Charles Spurgeon and D.L. Moody for me, and the Apostle Paul and Peter. For that matter, say hi to Jesus, who is at the center of that place. And who gives light to the entire city. There's no sun and moon. There's no, there's no light and dark periods of the day. It's light all the time because Jesus Christ is himself the light. And Jesus says that he has made for each one of us who put our trust in him a glorious place to live with him forever. And we get a new name that is known between you and God like a pet name. Just between the two of you, because you have an intimate relationship with God, a close personal friendship. You have, you're clothed in white, you eat of the tree of life forever, and you dwell in complete peace and security and safety with the Son of God. And there is no more crying or mourning or pain or death anymore. How does that sound for a reward? Sign me up, right? Where do I go to sign up for that? Okay, You go right here to the promises of God. That God exists, that he rewards those who seek him. And how do we seek him? By faith. Now let's look at Noah for a few minutes here before we wrap up. Verse 7, Noah. God saved Noah by his grace. 
That's what the scripture says. If you look at Genesis chapter 6, it says, Noah found favor in the sight of God, meaning that God looked down at humanity, saw that they were all wicked, and he said, nevertheless, I'm going to save that guy and his family. And he, sa- he by grace, saved Noah and brought him into relationship with him. And then he warned Noah about the coming flood that would destroy all of the people and all of the land-dwelling creatures on, on the entire earth. And he said, look, Noah, I want you to build a giant boat about 450 feet long. Huge boat. And I want you to put representative kinds of creatures. You know, I want you to put members of the cat family on there. I want you to put members of the dog family I want you to put members of the elephant family on there. I want you to put different kinds of animals, all different varieties of the different kinds of animals. Not every individual species, but representatives of the different kinds of animals. I want you to put them all on there. And I want you to put you and your family on there. And then we're going to have a flood. Now the text reminds us of this. It says, of things yet unseen... It warned him of, of things, he reverent fear, in reverent, concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear he constructed an ark. Okay? Uh, what that's a reference to is the fact that there had never been a flood on the earth up to this time. In fact, a lot of commentators, if you closely read Genesis, first several chapters will say they doubt that it had ever actually rained on the earth at that point. And that the plants were watered by a mist that came up out of the ground, actually. And so, so he gets two things that he's never heard of, that no one has ever seen on the earth at this time, that you're going to have water falling from the sky. That doesn't happen. In great quantities, and by the way, in the middle of an area that is uh, uh, several hundred miles away from the ocean, I want you to build a boat now, I mean, I think it would be challenging to get a boat down to the river from my house, and I'm like a mile and a half. But this is hundreds of miles away from any ocean. Build a boat, a huge boat, not just a rowboat, not a dinghy, not even a yacht, something bigger than a football stadium. And you and your family and representatives of all the animal species get on it because the flood is coming. And so for about 120 years, Noah and his family built this massive boat. And for 120 years, they're having to explain to all the neighbors what they're doing. Can you imagine? So what's that? Well, it's called an ark. What's it for? Well, see, when I get done building this boat, can you just imagine the looks the neighbors are giving you at this point? When I get done building this boat, there's going to be water that's going to fall in great quantity from the sky. Water doesn't fall from the sky. What kind of an idiot is this fellow? And it's going to cover the whole earth. In fact, it's going to cover the whole whole earth to such a degree that all of the land-dwelling creatures on the whole earth are going to die except for the ones in the boat with me. Now, they didn't have, you know, psychotropic medicine back then. You know, where they could inject you with something and get your mind right. But I'm sure that they would have got the guys in white coats 
uh, and a little special room for him with rubber walls if they had had that back then, right? Because they think, this guy is a nut. This is never going to happen. And yet, what happened? God commanded Noah and the animals to get into the ark. They all got in. God shut the door. And they sat in there for seven days. And nothing happened. On the seventh day, the rain began to fall. And Noah and his family looked really, really smart to everybody else. And Noah preached for 120 years to people, whoever would listen, about the coming judgment and that the only way to escape was through the implement of wood that God had provided. And in the same way, the writer of Hebrews is using Noah as an example for us. He says, by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. What he means is this. He's not saying that Noah stood above everybody and said, y'all are wicked and you're all going to die and I'm happy about it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this. He's saying that he, is war- he warned people about the coming of judgment and the way to escape. And he said, I am going to get out of this. And as many of you as will join me can also get out of this. But I'm going to leave the world that you all live in. And I'm going to live distinct from it. Because God's judgment is coming, but his salvation is here. And you can have it too. Those who believed God's word of judgment and salvation got into the ark and they were saved. And those who didn't were condemned. And their faith in God's word was counted as righteousness by God and they became heirs of God's promised salvation. They did. What happened to everyone who rejected God's word through Noah? They all died. Every single one. They all came under God's judgment. And here's the point of all these verses. That faith means trusting God right now for what you do not yet see. You know, I bet some of you, as you were sitting there, were thinking, boy, the description of glory sure sounds good. But it is sure a contrast with the experience I'm having right now. Because the life I'm having right now feels like going through an old school clothes ringer face first. And it is no fun. And God, I I love your promises of of glory and goodness and a restoration of all things in the days to come, but it would sure be nice if they were here right now. And you may cry out like the psalmist does over and over again, how long, O Lord, how long? But the encouragement from the book of Hebrews is this, how long? Not long. Not long. And you keep trusting God 
Because His Word always comes true. Even as outlandish as it must have sounded to the people of Noah's day, it came true. Amen? And as outlandish as it sounds that there would be a trumpet blowing and an archangel screaming so loud that the entire earth can hear it and that Jesus' return would be like a lightning flash that is visible not only in the east but also in the west, that when Jesus comes back, everyone on earth will see Him coming. As crazy as that sounds, guess what? That's true. And it's going to happen. And so you keep trusting God until it does. Amen? That just like these people who live by faith, you live your life by faith. And if the day comes when you die, and you haven't yet received what is promised, die believing that that day is coming. I've been present at a few people's death. I've watched non-Christians die. I've watched Christians die. And you know, it's interesting. The Christians that die, especially if they're, if they're kind of aware of what's happening, it's an amazing thing. Because when they go to glory, they see something. I remember watching Wally Cold pass away. And he got a big smile on his face, and he said, pretty, pretty. And then I was, he was gone. You know what he saw? I'll tell you what he saw. He saw the Lord waiting for him. And so you go to glory, and you go to your death confident, trusting in God's promises because they are true. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what you have prepared in advance for those who love you. And Father, we live in a day when it is not easy to be a follower of Christ, when we will, as the Scripture says, be mocked and reviled and persecuted and hard-pressed because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And people will look at us and they will see the things that happen in their lives, our lives and they will say to us things like, well, where's your Jesus now, buddy? Because it doesn't seem like He's bailed you out of this situation. But Father, we pray that by Your grace that you would uphold us by your Holy Spirit all the way to the end until we see what we have hoped for our, all our lives. We see you and we enter into your presence with joy unspeakable and full of glory. The half of what is there has not even been told to us. And Father, we pray that we would be faithful to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.